please turn also to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 3. The text for this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. This also is God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <clears throat> then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. <clears throat> May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel, that sinners can be justified in your presence. That we can be justified not by obeying the law harder and trying harder, but rather we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That you have made exceedingly great promises to us. That... The gospel answers that age-old question, how can a man born of a woman be pure? And we thank you, Father, that you manifest your righteousness in it. Father, we pray that we might trust your promises, that you graciously receive sinners. Father, help us to be those who forsake the old ways, that we would desire that which is new, that you have created us anew in Jesus Christ. We pray in thanks for the power of your Spirit that has not left us as orphans. We pray, Father, <clears throat> that you would help us to realize that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Father, we pray for any are, who are here who have not embraced the promises of the gospel. We pray, Father, that they would cling to Christ for eternal life, that they would trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted this day. Your servant will be humble. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Imagine the type of <clears throat> the common situation it is 
in the newspaper, on your news feed, to hear about a politician who has a son in trouble with the law. That, of course, any of his political opponents would want to would wanna make a major incident of this. But how would that king or how would that politician get his son out of trouble with the law? So how would he go about doing justice, but at the same time spare his son? Well, perhaps you can see, this is the whole question that comes up regarding God our Father. That how can God spare sinners without violating the principles of his own justice and holiness? Well, that's what the gospel answers for us. Even as we see in this passage, Romans chapter 3. You think about this book of Romans. The book of Romans is Paul's great treatise on justification by faith. That he, he tells you what he's going to tell you in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That the, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So he gives his introduction. There he says, this is the thesis. This is what I'm going to prove. Then in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32... He begins by talking about the Gentiles. And he says, hey, you know what? There's, there's not much proof needed here to show that there's unrighteousness in the Gentile world. All you have to do is look at their actions, right? He says all, all the things about them. They, they bow down and, and worship animals. They, they bow down and, and worship the created things. And then look at their sexual practices, the same ones that are going on in our country today, right, where things get progressively worse. And he's saying, hey, isn't that all that's needed to show you that there is unrighteous, there's sin involved in mankind? Then in Romans chapter 2, he talks about the justice the impartiality with God. And then he begins to talk about, ah, so it's easy to point a finger at those Gentiles. But then he says, hey, now you Jews, I'm going to address you next. I'm going to address you in, in somewhat of a different way. So the Jews boast, hey, we, we have the oracles, we have the law. But then he says, hey, are, are you who, who have the law, are, are you actually those who obey the law? Because having the law, there, there's nothing good about that. If you have the law and you don't obey it, you're condemned by the law. And that's what he tells uh, the Jews, his own people, saying, hey, God has given you the law. That is a privilege to have the oracles of God. But the fact that you have the law and that you don't obey the law, that's your condemnation. So, so that's, that's the contrast, right? So here in Romans 3, the earlier half of the chapter, his conclusion is that there are none righteous, no, not one. That Jew and Gentile together are all under sin. That the law is no means of righteousness. And children, perhaps you've noticed in our, in our text today, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, the key phrase is the righteousness of God. It's mentioned no less than four times. So earlier in Romans chapter 3, there is the problem of there is no one righteous, not one. And then in the second half of Romans chapter 3, what we're in today, we have the righteousness of God. So the contrast is the sinfulness of man, the unrighteousness of man, and then we have the solution in the righteousness of God. And that's God giving us the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> so we see in this passage that justification is God's gracious gift 
of imputing Christ's righteousness to and forgiving sinners through faith in Christ apart from works. We'll look at this in five points. Hopefully they'll be brief. The first is the origins of justification, verse 21. The means of justification in verse 22. Third, the necessity of justification in verse 23. Fourth, the basis of justification in verses 24 to 26. And then the caveats for justification in verses 27 to 31. So we have this first point, the origins of justification in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here, we spoke earlier about Romans chapter 3, that condemnation for all is without exception. For Jew and Gentile alike, that you think about the, the distinguishing marks of men, there's only two categories. You have Jews, and then you have Gentiles. You have Israel, and you have all the other nations of the world. And we're told that uh, both are bad off. They're badly off. That, that there is no justification for them by obedience to the law. Romans 3, 9 to 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And here, continuing, speaking about how uh, the law speaks to those who are under the law. And every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Now, that's the answer. Everyone is accountable to God. Right? That there's a law of God written on the hearts of those who are Gentiles who have not been given the law. And there's the Jews who have been given the written law and they violate it. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that since Adam's fall, the law is a dead-end means to righteousness. So he's saying, hey, I want you to see that there's no hope for righteousness according to the way of law-keeping. Works is not a means to life. The human works can only account for death because we disobey the law in thought, word, and deed. So now that righteousness through the law is an impossibility, what option is left? And here you have in Romans chapter 3, you have the Apostle Paul then presenting the good news of the gospel. The righteousness of God has been manifested. So we have there in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And it's manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God is the righteous judge. The age-old question. Think about Job's friends. That they didn't do Job much of a service, but they were at least asking the right question. Two, two of them asked that question. Job 15. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? That's a question that people are asking. They're asking, hey, how can a man who is born of a woman be righteous? Because they're saying, we haven't met anyone who is. And that's the same question we started with about a, a king or a politician. 
that his son, with all the privileges and all, all the, the wealth and the power, and he gets himself on the wrong side of the law. He, he, he commits a crime. And, and how is that dealt with? And according to that human king, that human ruler, <clears throat> that he will commit injustice if he attempts to spare his son in any way from the justice he deserves. But not so with God. Not so with God. Our God is a God of righteousness. That uh, people ask the question, well, can't God just kind of shove all those things under the rug? So whatever I've done wrong, can't he just shove it under the rug? Can't he just look the other way? And here, can we see that even about a human king, a human judge? The answer is no. He can't do that. And if a human ruler who is called to be righteous and just can't do that, certainly God who is holy cannot do that. Sin must be paid for. It must be dealt with. <clears throat> there's nothing underhanded. And there's no uh, injustice in God's manner of saving sinners. In fact, the gospel proclaims the very righteousness of God. That this righteousness of God is the highlight of this passage. That's what it's trying to tell us. That God is righteous. That he brings the good news of the gospel. Where sin is dealt with. There was a payment. Jesus is that payment. Now it would be unrighteous for God. To take our sins. And punish uh, another mere human for it. But God bears that sin himself in his son. So here, you can say that every sin is paid for in full. Either the sinner who committed the sin will pay for it, or it has been paid for in full by Christ and his death on the cross. So God is the one who originated this concept of justification. This concept about a sinner being made righteous before him. I'm sorry, uh, a sinner being declared righteous before him, and that it is only through Jesus Christ that this can happen. Now, perhaps some people think that the Apostle Paul is teaching some type of novelty, meaning that, hey, you came up with this on your own, and we've never heard about this before, that this is all new. Yet here... He mentions, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will go into more detail about Abraham. So he goes into, the, uh, he goes into details about Abraham uh, that we read earlier. Romans 4, he quotes uh, Genesis 15. But I will reference it even here that we read earlier. That this righteousness by faith, this being credited with righteousness, that it's not a novel concept to the Apostle Paul. It's been there since the first book of the Bible. That Abraham believed God and it was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. That the Apostle Paul or Christianity uh, may be accused of, of being novel... But there's no validity to that accusation. People can accuse in all ways. But it's, there's no truth to it. And we think about how 
novelty uh, is, is desired after in our culture. So you think about businesses, you think about marketing, there's always a desire to be novel. Hey, what, what, do you, what do you have that no one else has? And then you think about the church. The church tries to be novel, right? They shouldn't be, but they start to try to do new things. Hey, uh, people aren't interested in uh, the good news of the gospel, so we need something else. We need to give away expensive gifts. Uh, we need to have uh, all these fancy shows and, and whatnot. But what we ought to understand is that the church is the focus on that which is essential. Its primary role is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, disciple men, women, and children in this good news, in what God has given us. That any time the church starts focusing on other things, then it's lost. We think also about this matter of novelty. Is your desire to bring novelty to Christ's church? Well, think about that for a moment. If an interpretation or a practice uh, has not been known in the church for over 2,000 years, suddenly someone's teaching it, suddenly someone's promoting it, uh, we shouldn't say, all right, there's something new we can do. We ought to say, hey, we ought to be careful, because if the church has never taught that view or has never done that thing, hey, why is that the case? Now, that's not, that's not an absolute statement that that view is necessarily wrong, but at least we should be suspect. If the church hasn't taught that, then oh, what, is, what has God held back for 2,000 years to his beloved bride? We want to be careful about this novelty. And so here the Apostle Paul is saying that this gospel, this justification by faith in Jesus Christ, this is not a novel view. It's been here from the first book of the Bible. We ought not to desire the novelties, that we ought to desire that which is true, that which is holy, that, that which God has given us in his word. So that's the first point, the origins of justification. We have also the second point, the means of justification, verse 22. <clears throat> the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. <clears throat> Here, God's righteous plan for man's justification is that it would come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's only two options. There's righteousness by law works, or there's righteousness by faith grace. So with Adam, you have the covenant of works, that was the time for righteousness by law works. And when Adam failed, every one of us failed in him. That he was our representative, we all failed. So Adam's sin is held against us, it's, it's on our account. And when Adam failed, there was no other way according to law. The only option that remains is justification by, by grace through faith. Now... Perhaps we ought to make some clarifications about this. Because in our day and age, people think of faith as some type of entity all on its own. So, hey, if you, if you run out of options regarding treatment plans and you want a second or third option, have you considered faith? Well, faith in what? Oh, no, no, just have you considered faith and that somehow faith is going to heal you? Well, you realize that faith is no good 
if it has the wrong object. Faith must be in the right object. Faith, faith must, must be not just in someone named Jesus, right? You, you can't have faith in, in this Puerto Rican friend of yours named Jesus, right? No, it must be in Jesus Christ that is offered to us in the Bible, in the scriptures, right? It must be in Jesus Christ and him alone. Must have the right object. Also here, we ought to say that there is no boasting or no meritorious claim regarding faith. Meaning that you can't say, hey, I, I believed it and so that makes me righteous. The catechism that we read earlier addresses that. <clears throat> so this matter of uh, imputing faith itself. Right? It says, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. That it's not as if uh, faith is somehow a work. That faith is, is meritorious. It's not. That the idea of believing God's promises, that's entirely in contrast to all the details of a works-based obedience. A works-based righteousness. <clears throat> it's also the case here in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How often is it <clears throat> that we, we come to principles of exclusion? Right? If you think about it... <clears throat> You, you kind of know, when I was a kid growing up, you kind of know that there are restaurants that, you know, we just wouldn't go to because we know we wouldn't be welcome there. We don't have the right face. We don't have the right clothes. We don't have the right kind of cash. That's how life is. Right? you, you got to understand that, that there are certain things you can't do, right? I, when, I, when I went to Asia, I noticed that on the airlines, all the stewards and stewardesses look kind of the same, right? The women were uh, somewhere between 100 and probably 160, 165 centimeters, and they correct that with heel length. And they're all, all certain form. And, uh, you know, if you have someone who's uh, a 150 centimeters tall and doesn't have the same shape, the bottom line is you're not going to be a stewardess on this airline. That's just not going to happen. It's only in the United States that you can be 75 years old and sue and become a stewardess in our, our American-based airlines, right? All, all this to say that there's an understanding about exclusion. The world understands exclusion. But what we have in these verses is that you have our Lord Jesus saying that here, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. Realize there's unity in the gospel. The gospel unites people. It separates, right? The people who don't believe, people who are outside of Christ, obviously should be set apart. But for all who are in Christ, that there is unity in the gospel. And that we ought to understand that the gospel should be the primary unifying factor of a people. 
So that people can say, wait a minute, I don't see what you have possibly have in common with those other people. And that we might say, the one thing that unites us is that we share a common faith in Jesus Christ. And then they would be puzzled, oh, wow. You mean, you mean that's your greatest identity? You're not identifying and, and you all have some one political party. Or you, you all have, uh, you know, a, a, the, you're upwardly mobile. Or you're, you're all of a certain uh, occupational group. No, no, no. There's breadth in all that. That unity is found in Jesus Christ, a common faith in Him. When we think about this order of salvation, perhaps some people have asked, why is it that we're talking about some of this minutia? Well, not all of it is minutia. It's very easy to take certain things and try to mix them and combine them. And uh, perhaps we can say that uh, these events of redemption, these events of redemption can be distinguished, but they can never be separated. One of the key Ideas that separates those uh, in church history is this matter of justification. This matter of justification. Martin Luther had said, the church stands or falls on this doctrine of justification. If you get this doctrine wrong, this is not a non-essential. This is not a, hey, uh, th- those are matters that we, we can agree to disagree on and we can accept each other as brothers. No, you, you get this doctrine of justification wrong, then you're pretty much done. Right? We think back to the history of the church. <clears throat> history of the church. Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And the Jews were the people of God. And that was at 33 AD when the Jews got it wrong. They didn't receive their Messiah. They didn't believe upon Jesus Christ. They ceased to be the church. They ceased to be the church. They, there was judgment that came upon them. They apostatized. And you think ahead, 1,500 years that the Protestant Reformation and of key importance, the Council of Trent. That there was one church back then. But when, but when Rome, at the Council of Trent, said we anathematize the true view of the gospel, this justification by faith apart from works, what they did was they anathematized themselves. They ceased to be the true church. They mixed justification and sanctification. That justification is a process, they said. And uh, that it is infusing of righteousness. When, when we look at our catechism here, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. So you ought to understand the historical context that the Westminster Confession of Faith was writing specifically to correct wrong views. It was addressing, it was actually addressing Rome here. That there's not an infusing of righteousness in justification, that God purifies his people in sanctification. So in justification, God removes the guilt of sin, and in sanctification, God removes the pollution of sin. 
Rome mixes that together, this is how they get their false views. And so here, we ought to understand that with justification, what's happening is a declaration. God counting men righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the means of it is faith. It's not a meritorious means. It's an instrument. It's the instrument by which we receive our justification from Jesus Christ. So the third point is the necessity of justification. In verse 23. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we begin by saying what, what this necessity is not. This necessity of justification is not in any way that God is obligated to justify sinners. That God is obligated to save sinners in any way. That a sense of entitlement, uh, this mark of pride, even to the point of feeling entitled before God. Entitlement is seen everywhere. That people who have huge loans, right, with uh, student loans, hey, I got $150,000 of debt because of my student loans. Well, the U.S. government is obligated to, to forgive that or to overlook it or to pay it off. Well, did you not sign on the dotted line that you would, you would pay this debt? And you think about how entitlement works its way into uh, our dealings with God. That God, you're obligated to forgive us. That that's your duty. And how that entitlement is, is a manifestation of our own pride. God is not responsible. He is not duty-bound to justify every sinner. Rather, this necessity of justification refers to the need of man. For there is no distinction. Meaning that between one sinner and another sinner, well, first off, we're all sinners. So we're all on the same grounds. We're all on the same grounds here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And people can argue, wait a minute... He or she fell more short than me. Hey, I don't know how you can claim that. What we all can claim is that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned in many ways. <clears throat> Here, the world seeks to foment discord between groups. Perhaps you've witnessed it. Uh, there's a uh, an attempt to foment discord between different ethnicities. And here, we, not, we ought not even call them races. We, we ought to speak correctly in, in, in the, the teachings of our Lord that there's only one race. It's the race of Adam. All who are descendant of Adam. We have ethnicities. And the world tries to create, uh, foment discord between the different groups, whether it be the rich and the poor or different ethnic groups. You see this happening, Right? They're trying to produce discord, trying to produce enmity and wars. Yet you see here, the gospel unites because it puts us all on level grounds. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one group that needs the gospel more than another. We're all desperately in need of it. Every category of people group has unity in these two matters. 
The first is the same diagnosis of the greatest problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There might be an unreached people group. We don't know what their idiosyncrasies are, but we we have in God's word a diagnosis of their greatest problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no need, hey, uh, uh, we have to reach them, and this is their their real need. This This is their real problem. So that's the one, the greatest problem, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's... There's unity in the second matter, in the greatest need or the greatest hope. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's unity in that. They have the same problem and the same hope, the same need. Our hope is not in education. It's not in wealth or privilege. It's not an affirmation. It's not hope in self-esteem. Hey, you know what? This group, their biggest problem is they need some more self-esteem to fix it. No, no, no. The greatest need any person, any people group have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered? The world presents to us all kinds of messiahs, right? The, The messianic view is this simple. You vote for me and... All of your problems are gone, right? You vote for me, man. You're, you're, you're gravy, right? Your life is set, right? You don't have anything to worry about. You will never starve, right? And think about, think about what Jesus presented. John chapter 6. Does he present an answer to that when he says, hey, you're looking for a free meal. And that's not what I'm going to give you, right? You think about, hey, would there have been an opportunity for him to gather a crowd? But he didn't do that. That's not what Jesus came to do to give you a free meal. He addressed the greater problems. May you and I not be distracted, not to lose sight of the importance of the gospel message. If our diagnosis of, the, of man's greatest problem is wrong, then the solution will be wrong. And here, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 is giving us the great hope, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no greater news than this. There's no greater problem that we have than our sin and the judgment that comes because of it. We think also, for the fourth point, the basis of justification, verses 24 to 26. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here, the Apostle Paul starts identifying all kinds of terminologies as the basis of our justification. So faith is not the basis of our justification. It's the means by which we receive it. We see here, and are justified by his grace. So it's God's grace that we receive justification. It's God's favor upon us that's entirely undeserved. What we earned is his wrath, and he doesn't give that to us. Instead, he gives us his favor. That's, that's the simple definition of grace. And when you and I understand grace... We can never demand it. 
Because grace demanded is grace misunderstood. You, you can't demand God's grace. God freely gives it. And we also have God's gift. That justification is described as a gift. So if you're in your neighborhood or in your workplace and you bring a gift for one particular employee or one particular coworker, right? Another coworker can't say, hey, you gave him a gift, you need to give me a gift, right? It might not be particularly wise to give that gift in front of everyone, right? But by definition, a gift is not something that can be demanded, right? Someone gives you a gift that uh, they're not obligated to give everyone a gift. Otherwise, we've misunderstood the concept of a gift. A gift is, is that which you did not earn. You don't earn gifts. Uh, you earn wages. You do work, and you get wages. But a gift is something you didn't earn. A gift is also that which cost you nothing. You didn't pay for it. And that's what the gospel is. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. It's freely given. And it cost you nothing. It cost God everything. It cost him the life of his son. There's also the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. What do you notice that this word redemption comes up? Pick up a bottle, a pop, or you pick up a, a can of soda, right? It says redemption value. Right? We can understand that. It's, it's used in a common, common way. That redemption is the ransom price paid to set another free. So, God pays the ransom price, that's the life of his son, Jesus Christ, and that you and I as sinners can be set free. That there had to be a payment made, and the payment was paid in full by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he assures us that this payment was full, and that you indeed can be set free. Wait a minute, you, you mean that, that my eternal payment in hell that Jesus' death on the cross paid for that? And the answer is, yes, that is correct. This is what God has promised. And if we are going to doubt that, then we're doubting God's promise. We're doubting the truthfulness of God. And perhaps some of you might be even wondering, wait a minute, this sounds too good to be true. Well, the answer is it's not. God has promised it. He has told us in his word. And his promises are always sure. You're never going to receive anything like it, even close to it, in the world. The world will promise you all kinds of freedoms, all kinds of privileges. What they actually deliver is bondage. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can be promised this freedom. <clears throat> We also have a mention of this propitiation there in verse 25. <clears throat> Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What is this propitiation? Propitiation has to do with an offering to appease someone's wrath. So the, the wrath of God remains on us. That Jesus is shed blood, that was the propitiation. That, that Christ's death appeases God's wrath. 
It was his blood, meaning it was his life that washed us clean. And that you are called to receive it by faith. Believe the promises that God has given you. That Jesus' blood shed on the cross is sufficient to pay for your sins. That's the good news of the gospel. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here, this is that righteousness principle. That God maintained his justice. That justice was served in the gospel. And that he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So you think, you think back, you take a step back and you look, justification. This is an act of God. It's not something that we do, believing, believing the promises. It's something that God does. He justifies us. He declares us righteous in his sight. So this is the fourth point, the basis of justification. We have the fifth point, the caveats of justification, verses 27 to 31. Now what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So here is as if... The Apostle Paul in verses 27 to 31 is attempting to address all the doubts and all the what-ifs of someone who is listening to this teaching about justification by faith in Jesus Christ. So the first question, then what becomes of our boasting? And he says, it is excluded. Meaning that when you look at the heart of man... That we're always trying to include and, and insert our own merits, our, our own uh, praise. But the teaching, the biblical teaching of justification is such that it eliminates it. It closes all the options. It shuts off all, all the little nooks and crannies that our, our pride can insert itself. So if you and I are understanding the good news of the gospel correctly, this news about justification by faith in Jesus Christ, then we ought to see that our boasting, our pride, is eliminated by it. Here he says, by what kind of law? Uh, Here, law is used more like principle. So he says, excluded. By what kind of principle? By a principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. Faith meaning that it's according to grace. And works means its merit. We're told elsewhere, Romans 4, For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So when we receive a promise by faith, God fulfilling that promise, then it's showing us that it's by God's grace. It's not by works. So when the gospel is properly understood and embraced, then your pride and my pride should be completely eliminated. Even faith and repentance were told are gifts from God. Let me ask another question. Or is God the God of Jews only? No, he's the God of Gentiles also. He's the God of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
So then we have again here the unity of Christ's church. That there is no distinguishing lines where God has not given it. That there would be all these different groups united under one head who is Jesus Christ. In verse 31, he finishes by addressing, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So he's asking the question, so since we're not justified by faith, we're justified, sorry, since we're not justified by works of the law, we're justified by faith, then what becomes of the law? Well, this is the other thing that a sinner tries to do. They try to get rid of any occasion or opportunity regarding our duties. So some people would say, well, you just told me that we're justified by faith apart from works. Correct. But does that mean we don't need to obey the Lord? Well, if the motive is to earn his favor, to earn our justification, the answer is it can't be done. But if we're correctly understanding our Lord Jesus, that he makes sinners anew, that when there was once death, he has created life, then part of that life is that we might live new lives, that we might have new obedience in our lives. So then it changes the motivation, not not to earn it, but we're now obeying him out of our gratitude, out of our desire that we have a love for God's law. So no, we don't overthrow the law by faith. Uh, Rather, we uphold it, we establish it. That faith should lead us to greater obedience. Now, perhaps some of you are asking, why is this view on justification? Why is it so important? It's so important because all you have to do is look at the churches uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia. And that was in the Apostle John's lifetime. So, uh, you know, it was only, what, 40, 50 years, no more than 50 years after the time of Christ, he was still alive on the island of Patmos, he was writing. And only a few decades, and yet look at those churches, how some of them had started to desert the good news. It's very easy for different things to come in as priority for Christ's church. So we ought to understand from this that you must have a vigilant defense of the gospel message. That this justification is something that the devil will attempt at every opportunity to adulterate. They're going to try to adulterate it by changing it. They're going to try to adulterate it by by distracting you with something else entirely. That their church's focus ought to be on this or that. And it's, it's only that that shift that, that gets altered by not even a degree, but even a, a minute of a degree. And over, over time, uh, the, the effect will be tragic. So that you are called to believe upon Jesus Christ and that we would be jealous for this gospel message, this justification by faith apart from works. We also should understand that this good news should be our hope. That in it, Jesus is exalted. And if you have it such that anyone else is exalted, if you think 
You yourself are exalted in this gospel message. There's something wrong with that message. If the church, if the ministers, if anyone other than Jesus Christ is exalted, there's something wrong with the message. This gospel exalts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that he might receive the glory. That you and I would be those who claim the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our own sin for which Jesus made a payment for. That he receives glory. That yes, we're called to believe. Yes, we're called to repent. But do we ever boast in those things? The answer is never. We boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ who paid it all. May we go to our God together in prayer.